Hello, and welcome to The Rebind, a podcast about putting all the pages of the Bible back together. On today's episode, we take a step back from our normal program to tackle some big questions related to reading and interpreting the Bible. Whether you're wanting help digging deeper in your personal devotions or are struggling to know what to shoot for in a church Bible study, from meta discussions to practical tips, we've got you covered today. to actually do this episode for a couple of reasons. First off, the topic is massive. I mean, where do you even start? Studying the Bible is something so broad it covers pretty much every episode on the Rebind. But I'm also scared because the topic can get technical. I'm afraid everything I say will either sound way too obvious or way too jargon-laden. So I questioned whether an episode as meta as studying the Bible would really be useful for you guys. But I decided it was worth it. And here's why. So far in the podcast, we've been working passage by passage with a more typical conservative approach to studying the Bible. Start with some background info, get a better idea of the audience, a better idea of what the message is speaking into for Israelite exiles in Babylon, and then look at what chapter 1 says, then look at what chapter 2 and 3 say, and on and on and on. But even along the way, we've acknowledged that these passages are rich and multifaceted, and there are different aspects to the message, different angles to look through. So there are multiple ways of approaching the Bible for deeper study. And I think for some of us, at least, there's a red flag that goes up when I say that. Like, where do we draw the line? Can we just study it however we want? What criteria are we using here to determine what a valid reading of the Bible is? So here's how this is going to go. About half of this episode is going to be technical stuff, and the other half will be practical tips. That way, if you've really been wondering about those meta-interpretation questions, we've got you covered. And if you could care less about what goes on in those ivory towers, we've still got something helpful for you, too. Now, for the meta questions about reading and interpreting stuff, it may sound kind of boring and confusing, but you also might be surprised how often this stuff comes up. So don't skip to halfway through just yet. Maybe you're graduating high school and are about to head off to college, and you're going to get scoffed at for your views of truth. And that includes the way you interact with books and the Bible. There's a very strong prevailing perspective out there about who gets to say what something means, and it's trickled down to a surprising amount of everyday organizations and interactions. Maybe you got a coworker who you talk with who's part of a religion that uses the Bible, but interprets it way differently. If you're at the point in your relationship where you're talking about Christianity, how do you look at the Bible together without resorting to, well, we'll just agree to disagree, I guess? Okay, so let's think through it. The past couple of centuries have been a battleground for some very big questions about reading and interpreting written text in general, and the Bible in particular. Where does meaning lie in what the original author intended to communicate and what we interpret something to mean based on what's going on in our life? And in some ways, I think the entire debate is a little silly. It's just another example of overcomplicating something that all of us intuitively get just by living life. 
You get a letter from your grandma and an email from your boss. Do you write back, hey, I know you said finish the proposal by Tuesday, but according to my deconstructionist reading, I think you're really just representing classes struggled for power and want me to go climb Mount Everest. Like, come on. It's, it's kind of like the whole what is truth pinky up philosophical debate. Even outside the ivory towers on the ground, you'll hear things like, well, that's your truth, but my truth is different. It's like, okay, do you wear a seatbelt? Why? What if I'm on a railroad track and a train's about to hit the car I'm in, but my truth is that the train is a butterfly? Is that going to help? No, come on, we're way overcomplicating things. As human beings, we live within reality, not outside of it. And there's stuff that corresponds to that reality, that reflects that reality, like what will happen when a train hits my car, and there are things that are just illusions like thinking nothing bad could happen getting hit by a train. That's truth. It's not that complicated. And it's the same with God, too. There are things that correspond to who he actually is, and then there are just illusions. Offensive as it is to think that so many people may be wrong about what they're projecting onto their view of God and the world, and that we may have our own illusions as well, We don't need to invent a pinky-up philosophical debate to cope with it. It didn't work for Pontius Pilate, and it doesn't work for us. This stuff is not just an irrelevant book club, an inconsequential intellectualist hobby. It's a matter of what's real and what's not. There is a personal creator responsible for the universe, or there isn't. There is an existence after death, or there isn't. And if both those things are true, then we will either experience his favor or his anger after we die. It's not a matter of personal opinion or personal religion. It's a matter of what's real and what isn't. And, you know, life is too short and too hard to play games with the meaning of truth just to avoid those questions. Okay, there's my side rant for today, but... The reason it came up is that those same sort of games come up in the interpretation of literature and where a text's true meaning and message lie. Is there a message that's there that we can get right or wrong about recognizing, or is it just a matter of what something means to us and what our truth says the message is? In the ivory towers, it may play itself out in technical disciplines and philosophies like deconstructionism. But believe it or not, these kinds of questions and meta stuff comes up in normal church life, too. Picture this. You're in a Bible study with people you kind of sort of know from church. The leader is a real nice guy, real humble, super sincere. But he doesn't have a ton of experience leading this sort of a group. So your group decides to read through the book of Romans together and study it. And you're meeting together and, and the leader asks you questions like, what did you think of this passage? What really stood out to you? What do you think it's saying? And one woman speaks up and says, with excitement in her eyes, I think it means this and this, and and here's such and such that's been happening in my life and and how it really spoke to me. Then another guy says, hey, that's awesome. Here's what it meant to me. And on it goes. And you know that what's happening is good, like people are being encouraged by Scripture and they're interacting with what it says. But you're also a little uncomfortable. 
because some of it doesn't sound totally right. And you're sitting there wondering, is there ever going to be a time when someone says, hey, I don't think that really squares with what's going on in this passage without totally crushing someone's spiritual experience or making this awkward? And on the flip side, is it possible for these people to be partially right? Or do I have to say that there's only one message in this text if I want to prevent interpretive anarchy? Like, is there some way to make this discussion of the Bible more helpful and productive without resorting to interpretive anarchy or interpretive dictatorship? Okay, that's hermeneutics, the study of interpretation, the stuff that we're talking about here on this episode, and that's why it matters. What are we really after when we dig into a passage of the Bible to get to its message? And how do we really get there? Because if it was really 100% straightforward, then we wouldn't be having those awkward Bible study experiences. So despite my earlier rants about how simple this stuff is, I don't want to seem like a completely arrogant Neanderthal. There is value in the past few centuries of discussion about how we read and interpret texts. In my experience, actually, there's been a bit of a pendulum swing where conservatives have reacted to that truth as a butterfly deconstruction so strongly that they make interpreting the Bible out to be a super simple and super exact science. First do step A about background info, then do step B about your observations, boil it down to sentence, and if we all compare our notes all across the globe, we'll come out with the exact same thing. Now, I actually think that reactionary conservative response that says it's all just about the biblical author and biblical audience and it all has a single point has its own flaws, though. So since I've already shared my very subdued thoughts about the it's all and what it means to me approach, I want to make sure I cover this, too. It's important to acknowledge what we're bringing to the table when we come to ancient scriptures. Our experiences and perspectives color what we draw out of a given passage, and in some ways that should make us humble and cautious of our limitations. We're never going to get everything perfectly right. We'll always bring our own assumptions to the text, but over time, by studying and growing, we will get closer and closer to the right idea. We can know something truly without knowing it perfectly. But knowing that we don't know it perfectly should make us constantly humble learners. Grant Osborne describes the experience as a spiral. Yes, there is a back and forth with where we're coming from and where we end up. But as we interact, we do more than just go in circles endlessly. We we move somewhere. We grow. We gain understanding and get closer. Okay, but in other ways... It's not just that those limitations should make us humble and cautious and warned. Bringing our own perspective to the text is actually not all a bad thing. No one comes to church to hear about the Jebusites, someone once said. Encountering God in the Bible is about the merging of two horizons. The horizon of the biblical text and its word and the horizon of our own story and our world. Because we're not reading a dead word, we're encountering the living God through what we read. It's the text that holds the authoritative weight, yes, but that doesn't mean we're supposed to stay there. 
It speaks into our own world dynamically. And viewing the Bible with that prophetic two-horizon interaction makes it so exciting and fresh, even if we're reading the same passage a hundred years later, because that same original message will dialogue, it'll impact new ground at different angles and emphases. Even the creeds were born out of early century struggles for leadership and influence as everyone was trying to put their Bibles together with varying degrees of faithfulness. Okay, The things in the creed that got a lot of attention have to do with what was getting a lot of attention and debate in their culture, trying to keep the church alive and thriving in their day. It doesn't mean they just made everything up in the creeds like some people think, oh, Orthodox Christianity is just history as told by the victors. Well, no, everything that's in the creeds is a faithful reflection of what the Bible teaches. But they're not abstract, systematic theologies. No, they're, they're what happens when the Bible speaks into specific things going on in our lives. And those two horizons collide. So it's not good to react so strongly to the reconstructionist truth is a butterfly views that we say the biblical horizon is the only one that counts for anything. Because that's not true. Yes, we're putting the weight and authority of interpretation in what the original writers were originally trying to say, but the full weight of meaning happens when that speaks into our horizon where we're living. So don't be that guy in the Bible study that says, oh, in Joshua's day, they didn't have corporate businesses, so this can't be about you being courageous in your workplace. This is only about the Jebusites. Okay, so that's one really important thing to clear up about faithful study of the Bible. Being faithful to the original message does not mean we view everything in it through a distant telescope. We enter into its world, let its world crash into ours, and all that involves our participation, our response, where we're coming from, wherever we're coming from. Beyond that, the idea that there's a single point to every passage in the Bible is, well, poorly worded, I'd say. I want to give that a passionate yes and a strong no at the same time. The most helpful person I've read about this stuff is a scholar named Dr. Janine K. Brown in her book, Scripture as Communication. It's not really an easy read, just to be clear, but it scratched where I was really itching when I read it back in the day. Uh, instead of looking at the meaning of the text as a single point, like a dot, she talks about it as a sphere of determinate meaning. And I know you're thinking, oh my gosh, Andrew, wake me up when this technical snooze fest is over. But stick with me just a sec. This has a point, I promise. Or should I say it has a determinate sphere of meaning? Okay, maybe too soon for jokes. When I was in college at Moody, there was this group of young professors that would all carpool in together from Wheaton. There was a church historian, a systematic theologian, an Old Testament scholar and a preaching professor, all in the same car. How would you like to hear those conversations? So one day in the carpool, they're talking about this stuff. They're, they're talking about preaching with a single big idea. And the Old Testament scholar kind of objects to that way of doing things. He uses the image of a mosaic, stained glass, as a metaphor. 
Any passage in the Bible is beautiful and multifaceted, he says. It's all got these different pains and colors. And How could you say that just one of those matters? And the preaching professor who's defending this big idea approach to the Bible capitalizes on the opportunity he just gave her. So she says, yeah, you're totally right. Each passage in the Bible is like a stained glass mosaic. It's beautiful and multifaceted. It's got all these different pains and colors. But when you put all those pains and colors together, they form a picture. Can you imagine how much you'd miss out on looking at stained glass if all you saw was 20 different individual panes and missed how all the panes came together in a single piece of art, a single message? That's what Janine K. Brown meant when she used the term determinate sphere of meaning. Texts are multifaceted, but that's not the same thing as saying anything goes when you interpret them. There are summaries and takeaways that are faithful to what a text is communicating, and there are those that aren't. And there are summaries and takeaways that do a better job of showing off the whole picture of that stained glass mosaic, while others only shine light on a single pane, a single shard of glass. What's said about that shard might not be wrong, but it could still be missing out. So let's bring this back to that church Bible study scenario. I can't count all the books on preaching and Bible interpretation that I've read over the years, and they all seem to have their suggested steps and formulas for arriving at that big picture of the stained glass mosaic and articulating it from the text. But what's been most helpful for me as I study and preach scripture is to ask just four simple questions. First is, what is this passage talking about? Now, I'm not talking about Jebusites here. I'm talking about the topic, the subject, the thing the author is trying to probe or uncover or challenge or shed light on. It may not be immediately obvious or even what we first thought when we came to it, but we have to ask that question. That's the first step. What's this talking about, really? The next question is, is that what I'm talking about when it comes to this passage? Maybe I'm reading a parable and I'm journaling all about grace and forgiveness, but the parable is actually talking about being ready for Christ's return. Maybe we're that preacher that seems to talk about the same three things no matter what the passages we're preaching on, and when we stop to really think about it, we realize, oh, the subject of this passage isn't actually God's sovereignty or how much he wants to hug us, so I guess I shouldn't be having that as the focus of my sermon or Sunday school. Maybe we're at Romans chapter 8 in our Bible study that we talked about earlier, and I'm so impressed by the parts that talk about God's unseparatable love and being adopted as a child of God that I'm really thinking about and talking about intimacy, thinking that what this chapter is really talking about is what true intimacy looks like. But that's why this second question is here, to check what we're focusing on against what we've come to realize the passage is focusing on. And I usually ask this question second because it's easier for me to recognize what I'm focusing on and how it's different after I've taken in the message on its own terms first. 
if I start with what am I thinking about and then move to the passage, then I'm more likely to just project what I want to see back onto it. So that's the first two questions. It's really just one question with a self-evaluation thrown in. But then there's more. We don't want to just ask, what is this talking about? We want to ask, what is this saying about what it's talking about? Because we can get the subject right while still getting the message about it wrong. And a subject without a message about that subject isn't really anything to work with, and it really isn't how texts work to begin with. So coming to the point in the Bible study where we say, oh, passage X is about God's love is exciting, but not really helpful. What about God's love? What's it saying about what it's talking about? But then the final question, or really just final self-check, is what am I saying about what the passage is talking about? And is it the same thing as what the passage is saying about what it's talking about? Okay, that was wordier than I intended. Basically, if I'm reading that parable, and I've been journaling about and getting the subject right this time, this is about getting ready for Christ's return, and I'm thinking about that now, But maybe I determine the message, the argument, the claim, the idea related to the subject is that being ready for Christ's return is something that God does for us because of Jesus. And maybe that's theologically correct somewhere, but it's not actually what the parable is trying to say about what it's talking about. Maybe it's trying to say that being ready for Christ's return requires constant alertness. That's a very different takeaway, even if we got that first part, that subject, right. So maybe we're studying Romans 8, and we realize the subject has more to do with a life of faithful obedience made possible by our new relationship with God. That's what Paul really wants to talk about here, and we're confident about that, or at least that's what we think, and we've got that part right. But we still walk away with an idea that's foreign to what Paul was really trying to say about all that. Maybe we're just focusing on that part that says we've received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And we're thinking that Paul's talking about a life of faithful obedience made possible by our new relationship with God. So far, so good. Better, in fact, than we would have gotten just thinking this is all about intimacy. But then we think, oh, Abba means daddy. So Paul's claiming that a life of faithful obedience is possible now because that new relationship is comforting and comfortable and it takes all the weight off our shoulders. But since Abba doesn't mean daddy, that's just an urban legend passed along with a long game of telephone after one guy made that claim, we'd be walking away with the wrong idea about the subject. Jesus actually cries, Abba, Father, in the Garden of Gethsemane before his crucifixion. And in this same part of Romans, Paul is talking about us suffering with Christ. So maybe the message is something more like the new relationship we have with God makes faithful Christian living possible because it enables us to face the worst suffering. We're no longer indebted to sin and death, but we inherit Christ's pattern of death to self and life in God instead. Obviously, you wouldn't write that in your diary because it's way too wordy, but you get the point, okay? Four simple questions. It's really just two questions asked two different ways. 
First, what is this passage talking about? And then check, is that what I'm thinking about as I read it? Is that the subject in my mind? Then, what is this passage saying about that? What is it saying about what it's talking about? And then just check, is that what I'm taking away from this? Or, or am I drawing a different conclusion? It's simple enough, and I've actually found that to be the most helpful and straightforward way of thinking about things, too. Now, does that mean you can't write about grace and forgiveness in your journal if you're reading a parable that talks about Christ's return? Well, no, of course you can. This is where that determinate sphere of meaning slash stained glass mosaic stuff comes in. You can focus on single panes, shards of glass, peripheral ideas, different aspects and angles, but all of that will become more beneficial if you've got the big picture right first. Reflecting on Christ's grace and forgiveness will be more helpful if you've got a grip on what the parable is actually talking about and saying about it first, instead of twisting everything to get where you wanted to land in the first place. Hopefully that makes sense and I'm not just rambling again. Maybe there's a minor aspect of Romans 8 that your small group wants to focus on when you get together, a small shard within the mosaic, and that's fine, I think. But it's better to do that after you've got a grip on those four questions so that even your discussion of that one part of the passage is more fruitful and on point. So now, what do you do in that church Bible study scenario if you're reading Romans 8 and someone is just really passionately talking about something that isn't even the same subject as what Romans 8 is talking about? Well, I'd advise you not to just shout wrong because there are better ways to guide the conversation in a textward direction without seizing control. Who knows, you might be wrong yourself, right? So... First off, I'd say run those questions through in your head first. Make sure you feel like you've got a confident grip on the message if you feel like something isn't sitting right. Then, having a clear vision of that whole mosaic, even if someone's saying something kind of off base from the passage, you can usually find something in what they're talking about that overlaps or relates to the message and encourage that. You don't have to discount everything they're saying. You can just highlight and affirm the parts that fit in somewhere on that stained glass. So if someone's passionately sharing their excitement about God's intimacy with them as their Abba Father, their Daddy, you can say, yeah, it's crazy how much of a real difference this new relationship with God makes, right? Because that's true. And yeah, it's it's hard to read that last part of this chapter about God's love and, and not get overwhelmed by that unshakable grace. And you know, for me, it was so eye-opening to, to think about how Paul relates all this back to our ability to live out the, the Christian life, right? See, no crushing people's spirits, no hostile takeover of the small group, but no anarchy either. You can find colored panels that fit into the picture and use them to draw attention to the whole. Boom. Existential church crisis solved. All right, well, we've already segued our end to some more practical tips and questions and insights for studying the Bible. Ask those four simple questions to get a good grip on the message of a passage. And don't make the mistake of being too narrow or too broad in the way that you take things away or what you take away. 
Think of a text like a stained glass mosaic. Try to take in the picture all the shards make together first before honing in on one in particular, and you'll have a much healthier, more vibrant experience reading the Bible on your own and studying it in groups. But now for the real juicy stuff, the real practical tips, the kind of stuff you'd see in a 10 Ways to Study the Bible Better blog. So you're reading a passage in the Bible, and you want to dig deeper. What do you do? Tip number one, mix it up a little. Especially for the more familiar parts of the Bible, it can be really difficult to experience it afresh. We're so used to hearing the same text said the same way over and over that it's not as new and exciting. And worse than that, it's, it's like taking the same path through the forest over and over and you're making a trail. We're trained to focus on the same things and walk away with the same idea, whether it's right or just kind of right or not right at all. But the closer we can get to the open-handed, open-hearted experience we had when we first read or heard a passage, the better off we'll be in letting that impact us, the more honestly and accurately we'll be able to answer those four questions. It's not about forgetting everything we've studied or trying to be a blank slate, but just hearing it fresh. Try listening to it instead of reading it. Try reading it in a different language if you know other languages or at least a lot of different translations. Try reading out loud. If it's a psalm or something, see if anyone's put music to it. One of the reasons I really like reading the Bible in the original language is it prevents the same English words from just glazing over me. Even though the content is the same, it feels more fresh because I'm getting the content at a new and different angle with different words and sounds and syntax. But there are other simpler ways of approaching a familiar text afresh. So try mixing it up. Tip number two, go for the top-down approach, not the bottom-up. By that, I mean the safest way to get a better understanding of a part of the Bible is to go broader, not narrower. A lot of us have already been trained to look at the context, you know, read a chapter before and a chapter after or something like that. But if we think about the way language works in general, I think we'll be even more inclined to widen our scope. If you get a letter from grandma, you don't flip to a random page and read the same paragraph 10 times. You read the whole thing. And if there's a part that's confusing, you make sense of it based on the rest of it. Just simple gut level stuff, we get it. How much more so a story? Wouldn't we say we need to understand the entire plot before trying to get a grip on the message? In some circles, it feels like the most impressive Bible study stuff you can do is in the minute details. Oh, this Greek word means such and such, or let's take this one phrase and make a mantra of it, put it on our t-shirts. But I would go so far as to say that if you had two hours, you'd be better off spending that entire time listening to the entire book your passage is in read once than you would doing 10 word studies. Go for the top down approach before you dig into the details. Reading through entire books at a time is tremendously important, very helpful, and I know that's time consuming, but just in general, bigger chunks are better and actually make the smaller chunks easier to understand by doing it that way. All right, last tip, tip number three, keep a notepad of questions you have. 
Knowing what exactly you're trying to figure out makes studying a whole lot more productive than simply searching through the tomes of study Bibles and blogs for endless amounts of information. Some passages, even the subject, isn't clear, and that takes digging. But others, the whole message is pretty straightforward, but what it looks like today, fleshed out in our lives on our horizon, might be a little confusing. So write down the questions you have, and write down your takeaways, too. They'll both give you things to pray about, bringing all of that to God as part of your Christian journey. And they'll give you more fruitful and focused things to talk about with your small group and with your pastor. So now for the big finale, the practical of all practical tips, I'm going to leave you with a bookmark that I've created and used in various Sunday school classes and teaching opportunities. Uh, You can find it by going to buythebookresources.com buythebookresources.com, clicking on the Rebind Podcast tab and playing this episode there. Now a button will pop up in the audio player window that you can click on. It'll look like a bookmark. Click on that and you can download the bookmark. You can call it a, a Bible interpretation cheat sheet if you like. If you come across a passage, you want to do some more study in it or really reflect on it, uh, go through the questions that are on that bookmark. It'll help guide you through the stuff that we've been talking about today. Getting a grasp on the original message. Putting yourself into its world, its horizon. Thinking through your own world. How God is speaking into it with the message of this text. Branching out after you got a grip on the big idea to think about themes and connections with other parts of the Bible and sophisticated writing features. and It's all there for you in the bookmark with simple questions. You can use it as we're working through Ezekiel. You can use it to help as you prepare to lead a Bible study or however you want to use it or not at all. No hard feelings here. I just thought I should offer some sort of prize for making it through the jargon-laden snooze fest of our hermeneutics discussion today. Now, none of this is meant to intimidate you. If you're any less excited to read the Bible as a result of this episode. Just disregard everything I've said. But hopefully the practical tips here encourage you even more and and give you some more tools in your tool belt to get more out of the Bible when you're reading it. And don't forget, free bookmark. Print it out, use it, be amazed. The Rebind is made possible by the help of Andrew Horning, who handles the audio mastering and music for the podcast, by the art contributed by graphic designer Adam Anderson, and by the continued interest of listeners like you. If you find these episodes helpful, be sure to spread the word and subscribe, give them a bookmark, and join us again next week. For now, though, I want to close praying some written prayers of illumination. O Lord, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Give us grace to receive your truth and faith and love and strength to follow on the path you set before us. Guide us, O God, by your word and Holy Spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover peace. Since we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth, make us hunger for this heavenly food, that it may nourish us today in the ways of eternal life. Through Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven. Amen.